Thank you, Drew. We serve a great God, and you did a terrific job of helping us to reflect on how great He is. So thank you so much for that. Church, please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, if you will. 1 John in chapter 2. You know, in recent term, uh, recent years, the term advocate has become more popular. It's used more common in our society. We think about this in the medical field. A patient advocate is someone who works alongside with a patient to navigate the uh, complex and changing truths about medical care, about how things are going to work out, and about scheduling appointments and all this stuff. It's kind of like a personalized uh, personal care or customer relations person. A company might enlist brand advocates to help market and to mainstream their product. In that sense, this is someone who is a supporter and a promoter of the company or the product. And while the term is uh, often used in a technical sense, it's not always used in a technical sense. An advocate can be someone who is a character reference for you when you're applying for a job and they speak on behalf of you. Or an advocate can be someone who's just defending your character when there are accusations that are being made. You know, thus far in our series in 1 John, we've seen the foolishness of claiming to be without sin. We've seen the foolishness to be free of the guilt of sin. In fact, to believe such things, John is telling us, is to be outside of the Christian fellowship, to be far from God if we deny that we have sin in our lives. This morning, as we look to the one who is our advocate, the righteous advocate, we're going to learn that we can acknowledge our sin and still find favor with God because we have one who has paid our sin debt who's washed it away, and who speaks on our behalf. We have a righteous advocate. This morning, as we seek to understand these two verses, we're going to ask four questions of the text. Those questions are there in your bulletin, on your your note sheet. But for now, would you stand as we read the Word of God together? 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Will you pray with me? Lord, we turn our attention now to this this text, to this word that you have for us, and we pray that as we read it, we would grow in godliness because your spirit is at work, and that we come to understand your love and your character more fully because your spirit is at work, and we pray that you would unite us in Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Now, one of the guiding principles of the American justice system is this common phrase, innocent until proven guilty. What that means is that the burden of proof lies with the prosecution, right? The defense just has to create some kind of doubt for there to be a not guilty verdict given. Now, not guilty isn't necessarily the same thing as innocent, but it's not enough uh, proof to determine one's 
guilt. So the defense then can just focus on creating confusion or creating uncertainty. And the truth of the matter is, this is exactly what the false teachers were doing all around these churches in Ephesus and everywhere else that their uh, word had gotten. They were creating confusion. They were creating uncertainty about the nature of true fellowship with God. They were claiming to be without sin or without the guilt of sin. Maybe even calling themselves uh, in some sort of perfectionism mindset. Like we've moved beyond the, the realm of sin. It doesn't matter anymore how we live because in the spirit we're, it, we're beyond sin. It can't touch us. It can't contaminate us anymore. They were denying the apostolic teaching on sin and on justification, and they were creating uncertainty. So John writes this letter to these believers, to these churches, in order to reassure them that they were on the right path. To reassure them that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that they would be in fellowship with God and in genuine fellowship with one another. But he also tells us there in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that he writes to discourage sin in their lives. So the first question that we deal with this morning is this. What is John's understanding of sin? Because John very clearly says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, at its heart, sin is breaking God's law. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, John says, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, now hear me say this. After focusing on the universality of sin and on God's rich mercy in forgiveness, John doesn't want his readers to begin to think that sin doesn't matter. And thus then to adopt this attitude that as long as we confess our sin, then everything will be okay. Right? Now, he's already said to the false teachers, look, you say you have no sin, well, you lie. You make yourself to be a liar. You're self-deceived. You say you have no sin, then you're making God to be a liar. But now John's saying, we don't want you to sin. Don't sin. So we ask this question, well, which is it? Either we don't sin or we do sin. What is it? And he's just simply saying, listen, we talked about sin. It's universal. But we also said the hope is that we confess our sin. This is authentic Christian living. However, don't fall into this mindset that it's okay. Don't fall into the mindset of abusing grace. John writes, I write these things to you because I don't want you to continue in sin. See, John understands that sin is serious. Sin is serious. Sin, friends, is never irrelevant. It's not irrelevant for believers. It's not irrelevant for unbelievers. Similarly, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, he says. Now, we're going to see this very clearly next week, but obedience matters. We're saved by God's grace alone, and that salvation is independent of our own good works, our own, independent of our own good deeds, but obedience is an indicator of spiritual life. So John says, I'm writing that you may not sin. Commentator Robert Yarbrough says that these are the... Uh, this is the personal and the pastoral wish of the apostle for his spiritual children. He's saying, oh, that you wouldn't sin. 
that you wouldn't rebel against God's revealed will, that you would value his word and that you'd seek to follow in his ways. And see, obedience isn't just about avoiding wrongdoing. It's about doing what we know to be right. And John is saying, look, I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to sin in the sins of commission, the things that you are involved with. And I don't want you to sin in the things that uh, the, the sins of omission, the things that you should have been involved with or should have done, but you failed to do. I just don't want you to sin. That's what he's saying to them. That said, just like every parent in this room knows, our children will ultimately rebel. We don't want them to. We don't want them to complain. We don't want them to pitch a fit. We don't want them to lie. We don't want them to speak disrespectfully to us. We don't want them to disobey when we give them instruction. But guess what? They will. Why? Because they are sinners just like we are sinners. And the Apostle Paul knows this. He knows that the the children, his little spiritual children, they will sin. They will fall. And how does he know that? Because he sees it from experience in others' lives, but he sees it in his own life as well. That's why he says, I'm writing that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, and notice what he says, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. See, John knows no one is immune to sin or beyond sin's reach. Now, based on what we read in John chapter 1, we know the Apostle Paul is not saying that those who walk in darkness, who perpetually and unrepentantly and habitually live in sin, he's not saying that they have an advocate with the Father. He's not promoting a theology that says, you know what, I'm under the umbrella of grace, so I can live any way I want to live, and it doesn't really matter. What he is saying is this. I know that when I'm in fellowship with God, when I, am, when I am trusting in Christ and I am walking in the light, when I stumble from walking in the light, when I mess up and I sin and I know it's going to happen, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Which leads us to the second question then. What is an advocate? Why do we need one? What is an advocate and why do I need one? Now, interestingly enough, the Greek term translated advocate here is parakletos. This is a term that we readily associate with the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. The paraclete is one who comes alongside us, the one who helps us, the one who comes to give us aid. And based on Jesus' words recorded for us in the Gospel of John 14 through 16, we understand that the Holy Spirit is the another helper paraclete that will be sent in order to give the followers of Christ aid, to comfort them, to encourage them. So then, we see that Jesus is himself a parakletos. He is one who comes to give us aid. He is one who speaks on our behalf, who defends us. An advocate is someone who speaks on our behalf or speaks in the defense of another. Now, in its most technical sense, the term is associated with a courtroom. The parakletos is the person who acts as a spokesman or represents someone else in the presence of an authority or the presence of a judge. Commonly, in ancient times, the advocate had a personal relationship with the person they were speaking in defense of. 
Uh, it wasn't necessarily an official position. It wasn't necessarily a lawyer or an attorney. It was someone who knew the person well and who would stand there to vouch for that person, to vouch for that person's character, to speak on behalf of that person. In other words, and you've heard the Miranda rights, maybe not read to you personally, hopefully, but you've, you've heard them before. You know that if you can't afford an attorney, then the court will appoint one on your behalf. Now, that person doesn't necessarily even know the person. Likely, in most cases, he or she doesn't know the person, and therefore doesn't really care as much about that person. But in the ancient world, it was a personal relationship. There was a, con- a relational context there. And what we see even here, as John writes, is that Jesus, the righteous one, is the one who pleads our case. And Jesus cares for his own. Now, there's a minor debate here as to whether we should understand the term righteous as an adjective describing Jesus or as a title naming Jesus. But either way, it's clear what the apostle means, isn't it? It's clear that the Apostle is saying Jesus is the perfect and the sinless one who stands before the judge to plead our case. Jesus is the one who goes before us, who comes alongside us and stands there to defend us. Now note that it is God the Father who is the judge. right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? The Father is the Holy One. He is the perfect judge of the world. He is the one whose judgment is both just and final. Now, it's important that we understand this. Sinners will be held accountable for their sin. Sinners will be held accountable for their sin. There may be people in this room today who don't know Jesus Christ. I want you to hear me say this. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you have no righteous advocate who is defending you. You will answer to a holy God based on your own works, based on your own wisdom. The difference between sinners apart from faith in Christ and sinners who are trusting in Christ is not the presence of sin. We all sin. The difference is that those who are trusting in Jesus Christ have an advocate. He's a righteous advocate. He is a holy advocate. He is a sinless advocate who goes to our defense. We need an advocate because we are guilty of lawlessness before the holy God. We need an advocate because we are all guilty of lawlessness before a holy God. We've broken his law. Uh, We can deny our sin, but that will only serve further as evidence against us in our blindness and in our confusion. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. There's no escape. It's eternal hell as a just consequence for our rebellion against a holy and a gracious God. Now, I said this last week. There are two strong indicators about the presence of the character of God in 1 John. I mean, John's describing who God is in a lot of different ways, but there's two kind of leading ways to describe God. God is light in chapter 1, and then later on in chapter 4, he says God is love. It's interesting, and I think, of course, by the will of God and the, the wisdom of God appropriate, that he leads with God is light. Because God is light points to the character of God in terms of his perfection and his holiness. And God is love, listen, and that's every bit as much of who God is as well as he is light. But as sinners, we could so easily twist that, couldn't we? 
We could so easily say, oh, God is love. That means that I can do whatever I want and God's going to love me. Or that means that it doesn't really matter how I live my life because God's enamored with me. And God just needs me. This is a lot of contemporary Christian music today, right? God's emotional stability depends on me. It's kind of what it's getting at. But the fact that God is light, it gives definition to what it means that God is love. Yes, God is all love. And He loves, but He chooses to love freely based on His character. It also means that His love is defined by truth. It means it's defined by righteousness. It means it's defined by justice. It means it's defined by His holy character. That light, that God is light gives, that God is light gives boundaries to what it means that God is love. By God's, because God's love is an overflow of His perfect character. And His love always accords with truth and with righteousness. And friends, that's why we need Jesus as our advocate. Because there is judgment for sin. But this begs a question, friends. In what way is Jesus our advocate? In what way is Jesus our advocate? And what we see is this. Jesus' advocacy on our behalf is tied to His mission on earth. Jesus' advocacy on our behalf is tied to His mission on earth. Right? The New Testament tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came and He died in the place of sinners. He came to make alive those who were spiritually dead in their sin. He came to... He came to give freedom to those who were trapped in bondage of sin. Jesus lived perfectly, yet according to the will of the Father, He died on a cross as the propitiation for our sin. Again, commentator Robert Yarbrough explains that propitiation is the averting of God's wrath in a substitutionary way. Propitiation is the averting of God's wrath in a substitutionary way. It's turning God from wrath to favor. From wrath to favor through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Now, not only does Jesus' substitutionary death cover our sin and remove our guilt before God because of our sin, it also propitiates. It satisfies the wrath of God on those who have rebelled against Him. Now last week I said there's no remedy for sin in the dark. If we remain in the dark, there is no remedy for sin. But sinners must come to the light. This is the rescue. This is the remedy for sin. That we come to the light. So friends, Jesus is our advocate Because His atoning sacrifice propitiates God's wrath. Jesus is our advocate because His atoning death propitiates God's wrath. We see this very clearly in Romans chapter 3, which we'll read here in just a minute. It's only through, hear this, faith in Jesus Christ that we have salvation from sin. That we are made right with God, right? God must punish sin Because He set it up that way. He's holy. He won't look on sin. He he is true to His Word. He said that all uh, sinners will suffer. He said that in the day that you sin, Adam, Eve, you will die. There will be a spiritual death. 
However, what we see is that in the death of Christ, God is just in His dealing with sin, and He is also the one who justifies, who declares righteous those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans, back a handful of pages to the left. So Romans in chapter 3. Romans in chapter 3, we're going to read in verses 21 through 26, okay? 21 through 26. I want you to note this theme of redemption, of universality of sin, of redemption, propitiation, and faith. Okay, this is important. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood, hear this, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we understand now that we're all sinners. We know this. But there is redemption bought back from the curse of sin and death in Jesus Christ. Propitiation, redemption, received by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, is there a clearer picture of God's great love? That Jesus Christ lays down His life, bearing the full wrath of God in our place? See, friends, this ought to motivate us to live for God's glory alone knowing what He has accomplished on our behalf, moves us to a greater love and a greater life of sacrifice, just as Christ has loved and sacrificed for us. But not only did He die for us, friends, He rose again. And today He lives to make intercession for those who are being saved. That's what the, apostle, that's what the author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews chapter 7, and verse 25 Speaking of Jesus, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So we see then that Jesus is our advocate in that He lives to make intercession for His own. Jesus, God Himself, the one who took on flesh, lives and makes intercession for His own. He is praying for you, friend. And if Jesus is interceding on your behalf as our advocate with the Father, then, friend, you are secure. Satan will bring his charges. Satan will point his finger. Satan will accuse. And guess what? Jesus isn't denying those charges. He's not saying, no, no, Nate didn't do that. What he's saying is, yeah, Nate's a sinner. In fact, he might be the chief of sinners. But I died for him. My blood covers him. There is righteousness for him. 
through me. See, it's all connected to being in union with Christ. If we are in Christ, then what is true of Christ is true of us. So Jesus is a defense lawyer, guys. He's not focused on creating confusion or getting us off the hook somehow. No, it couldn't be clear. He points to his own blood as our defense. Father, my blood washes away Nate's sin. Accept him because you've accepted me. And the finished work of Jesus Christ is the basis for our hope, is the basis for our assurance. The reason that we can have confidence in the last day to stand before the Almighty God, the judge of the universe, isn't because of our own goodness. It's not because of our own performance. It's only because of Jesus' perfection. And there's nothing else that we can hold up as our path to acceptance with God. It is only Jesus. And this glorious exchange of our sin for Jesus' righteousness ought to fill our hearts with joy and awe and move us towards worshiping this great and glorious God. See, truly understanding the gospel brings great joy and great freedom as we follow Christ. And then we come to the end of verse 2. And as we first read it, it seems very straightforward. But friends, this is a very controversial verse when it comes to understanding the doctrine of salvation. There's a lot of disagreement on this. There's a lot of disagreement on how we should interpret or define the word world. And different theological systems seek to differentiate how we should understand that word. So the final question then is this. Why does it matter that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the world, of the whole world. In fact, John says, Jesus is the propitiation, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, some would argue that the term world doesn't mean everyone in the world. It doesn't mean everyone but it only means the elect of God. Now, their argument is based on the idea that not everyone is saved, so how could Jesus of death serve as the propitiation for their sin? How could it have averted the wrath of God on those who are not ultimately saved? Now, philosophically, friends, this is a strong argument, okay? How is it that God's wrath can be averted in some sense, but those people aren't saved. How can that be? So such people, and there's a lot of different variations of this, would say that Jesus only died for the sin of the elect. In fact, we might look to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, in verse 19, uh, verse 9, excuse me, Jesus is praying, and he very clearly says, I pray for the ones you have given to me. I'm not praying for the whole world. He says, I'm only praying for those you have given to me. We might call that the elect. I'm not praying for the world. But even in that statement, we get an idea of how John is using the term world, don't we? He's not praying for everybody. He's praying for 
those you have given me. So we understand the world, the term world means inclusive. Okay? That's, that's a clue. And while Scripture clearly speaks of God's unconditional election, even as Jerry Watley read earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, right? Speaks of God's choosing us before the foundation of the world, predestinating us towards faith in Christ. Right? There is a clear emphasis on the sovereignty of God to limit the term world in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, doesn't work linguistically or contextually either. World means world, everyone, just as in John chapter 17, verse 9, and in John chapter 3, verse 16. So then, along with Danny Aiken and his assertion that Jesus' death is universal in provision, though not universal in application, I believe is appropriate. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all, but it is efficient only for some. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all, but efficient only for some. This is why Paul can say, or can write in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that Jesus is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. It's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming and he was going to be baptized, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now listen, there's a lot of difficulty that surrounds these texts. I understand that, okay? But I think sometimes we focus on the wrong thing. We can focus on the term world and we don't want to end up with this idea that everyone is saved because we know that's not true. We don't want to just focus on the term propitiate because... Uh, averting the wrath of God is not the fullness of salvation. Propitiation does not mean regeneration. Propitiation does not mean that you have a new heart by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It just has to do with the averting of God's wrath. So maybe then we focus on Jesus, our advocate, Jesus. Because, remember... The Apostle Paul was clear in Romans chapter 3 that he is the propitiation. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. By faith in who? By faith in Jesus, our righteous advocate. See, redemption in Christ is received by faith. And apart from faith, there is no salvation. And yes, faith is a gift just as all of salvation is the grace of God, but to appropriate the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross depends on being connected to Christ. Union with Christ is the key to every spiritual blessing. We can't think of salvation as just some kind of transaction that's passed back and forth between God and man, with faith being the currency. Faith is a gift of God. Faith connects us to His Son, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, when we are in Him, there is adoption as sons. There is regeneration of the heart. We are made spiritually alive. There is justification. There is sanctification. And friends, there is glorification. Every spiritual blessing is because we are in Christ through faith. And that the work of God. See, there's more going on at the cross than just propitiation. James P. Boyce, in his book on the abstract of Christian theology, writes, In Jesus' atonement, God is securing His gracious influences to bring about the faith 
and the regeneration of the elect. See, that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world means that we can offer the gospel freely. That's why it matters. We can tell people, Jesus died for you, brother. Jesus died for you, sinner. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And we don't have to wonder somewhere in the back of, my, of our mind, did Jesus really die for that person? Did Jesus really die for that person? There's more going on at the cross than just the propitiation of sins. There is a gracious and a special influence for God's elect, but there is more going on. So let's just be clear. That Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world doesn't mean that everyone in the whole world will be saved. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. And as the author of Hebrews says, while Jesus did in fact taste death for everyone, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, it is only those who by God's grace respond to the gospel who will be saved. It is only by God's grace that those who respond to the gospel through faith will be saved. So this, friends, leads us to conclude with two questions. If it's true that there is salvation only in Jesus Christ, who is the righteous advocate, then who are you telling, who are you telling the gospel to? Who are you telling about Jesus? Who are you sharing the good news with? Who do you know that needs to know and respond to the grace of God in Jesus Christ? If this is the message to avoid the wrath of God and to be brought into the fullness of joy in full fellowship with God, then may it be on our lips constantly. In our time of invitation, for those of you who are in Christ, I want to ask you to pray that God would impress upon your heart someone to be praying for and speaking the gospel to. Well, my second question, last question, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Have you placed your hope in Jesus Christ? Have you confessed your sin and called out to Jesus for forgiveness? If you haven't, hear me say this. Jesus died for you. Will you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? Will you turn from sin and put your hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ? And find eternal life. We're going to transition to an invitation here in just a moment. A time for you to respond to the work of God. To the word of God. If you have questions about what it means to follow Christ. Then I encourage you to come and let us explain to you the gospel. If you have questions about baptism. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you have thoughts about membership in this church. Becoming part of this family. Then come and we'll explain to you how you can become part of this church family. Or if you need prayer. I pray that you will come. I pray that you will respond to God appropriately because we can trust that He is at work. Will you pray with me? Great God in heaven, thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you that even when we come to difficult passages like this, your spirit is at work. And while we may not all agree on the right interpretation, we can all agree that Jesus is the righteous advocate. And that it's only through Him 
that any of us is made right with you. So thank you for securing our salvation, our eternal salvation. And Jesus, thank you that you are our advocate and that you pray for us. And God, may we pray for others. May we love others. May we live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and respond as the Spirit leads?